Well, good morning again. Good morning. Hey, uh, uh, we are jumping into a series here called Be Real. And if you are not hip and cool like me, uh, you did not know that this new app existed called Be Real until recently. Uh, somebody showed it to me and I was like, what's Be Real? I don't know anything about this. Well, so for the rest of us in the room, uh, Be Real is a new app that's it's just taken off. There's like 73 million downloads of this app. And uh, it is the new Instagram or Twitter. I don't know. I'm not cool enough to know these things. But basically how it works is everybody who has the app gets this notification. I'm going to get corrected on this by a teenager for sure. But here's my best understanding of it. Everybody gets a notification at the same time during the day. And basically how it works is you have a, a limited amount of time to take a picture with your front camera and the back camera. And it's supposed to be kind of real life, right? It's taking off, not because it's fancy or because it's super cool, but because it trends towards authenticity, that you get the real unfiltered, no prop you, which I'm not sure because I ended up in uh, our interns be real the other day. All of a sudden he walked, we're in a meeting and he just walks up to me and gets this like really close picture of my face. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, it's from my be real app, bro. I was like, okay, anyway. Well, one of the reasons why this app, I think, is really taking off is because we love uh, to be able to decipher something that is authentic. We want to know the real thing. And if you've ever spent time uh, in New York City, you know sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between the Gucci bag and the Gucci bag uh, and which one's actually real. If you've seen any of the uh, counterfeits out there, they're getting pretty good. And so as we examine the book of James what we're going to be looking at is not counterfeit uh, pictures or photos or purses, but what does the scriptures have to say about authentic, real faith? How do we tell the difference between perhaps a counterfeit or a fake faith in light of real faith? Well, in the book of James, what he's going to do is basically offer us this incredible diagnosis of, of how we determine uh, our faith in our own hearts to be genuine, to be real to never have to question or worry our faith, that we would know uh, for certainty that our faith is, in fact, what God would call us to. And over the next four weeks, we're going to give several kind of diagnoses of our faith as we go through the book of James. Uh, and this week, what we're going to look at particularly is how do we know our faith is real uh, in light of suffering? Or how do we have real faith in light of difficulties and trials? Because the reality is we all live in a broken world. The reason we have filters and we have things that fake the real thing is because the real thing can feel broken sometimes. It can feel messed up. It can feel imperfect. And so we can do uh, all these things to try to cover up those imperfections and that brokenness. But the reality is we all feel it. So how do you walk through it in a way that is life-giving? And so I want to share a story with you this morning of uh, how God really used a season of my life to draw out for me, what it was, the understanding that suffering was supposed to bring about in us. And so um, I started in missions at the ripe old age of 18. Uh, the day I turned 18, I hopped on a plane and I flew to Jamaica and I started with uh, YWAM, which is Youth with a Mission. And every YWAMer was required to go through an entry-level course called a DTS or Discipleship Training School. Well, the first three months of it were largely a classroom phase. And so I would sit in class and we'd learn stuff, learn how to be a missionary. A lot of it was character-based for us. Um, because being a missionary is largely based on character, not just skills. And so they were developing us and growing us. Uh, but part of the course was that you had to do uh, work duties. Well, I went to Jamaica and it was on this 13 acre base that had been donated to them for a dollar because the previous missionaries had gotten run out of the country. Uh, and it was this massive place with this huge orchard and it was paradise. 
I sent pictures back to my family, and they're like, suffering for Jesus, I see, huh, right? I'm like, you don't understand. It's so dangerous out there. Anyway, uh, nobody ever believed me that it was dangerous, but it is super dangerous in Jamaica. Uh, Anyway, so my work duties, there was four guys who were assigned to maintenance. Now, you can imagine 13 acres in the tropical jungle environment creates a lot of work and maintenance. Well, somehow, by day three, one guy got assigned to pool duty. The other one claimed he had a medical condition, and I'm pretty sure the third guy faked an injury because work duties happen from 2 to 4 p.m. in the afternoon. And if you've ever spent time in the Deep South or the Caribbean, nobody's outside at that time, not even the animals. Like, everybody goes. There's a reason there's the word siesta, because the sun tries to kill you, right? So just nobody goes out there, except entry-level YWAMers, because you got to build character, apparently. So we're out there doing work duties. And when I say we, I mean me, uh, out there doing work duties. And amazingly, the, the lawnmower was broken the entire time I was there. We couldn't get parts. So I'm mowing 13 acres by hand, in the middle of summer, I, I am just dogging it. I had to clean out the trash room, which, you ever left your garbage out in the middle of summer? Times it by like a hundred in Jamaica. It was this house, this uh, concrete building with a metal roof, and there was about 10 garbage cans f- with no lids, full of rotting food. And you can imagine the critters that invited into the building. And I was the lucky one who got to clean that building. And, and I remember one day in particular, the guy, John, who was the staffer, came up to me and said, hey, I want you to uh, clean out the, the garbage house, and then I want you to go remove all those shrubs and trees over there. And I looked at him, and I was like, that's going to take me three weeks. And he goes, uh-huh. I was like, send me pool boy. He's like, no, nope, you got this. <sighs> so I go over there with nothing but a machete and a shovel and a whole bunch of bitterness, and I just start whacking. And with every whack, I find that I'm hitting harder and harder and harder And as I was working, I realized I was growing incredibly bitter. I was bitter towards Pool Boy for his great tan lines. I was mad at John because it felt like John was punishing me. And then I began to grow mad at God. Because God, I, I left everything. I left my job. I left my car. I left my friends. I left the potential of going to college at this point in my life to follow you, to be a missionary. And I I came here to to preach the gospel and love people, not die of heat exhaustion in the middle of a garbage house. As the bitterness sat in my heart, I began to think God was punishing me. began to think that I had missed something, that I misunderstood him, that I I must have gone off course somewhere, that I wasn't supposed to go here, I was supposed to go there, and I began to question so many of my decisions. Well, that was 12 years ago. 12 years of ministry and life, I realized that God wasn't doing something to me. He was doing something for me in that season. I couldn't see it then. I couldn't understand it then. But some things had to be removed from my life. Some things had to be developed into my life. And God and John, and I love John. John and I have a great relationship now. He knew something had to change in my life. And he knew this was the pathway to get there. Now, I use this analogy, and and I wish this was the hardest thing I had ever gone through in my life. It's not. It's just the most fitting story for this morning. But I would imagine for you, and I know some of you, I know some of your stories, and I don't know everybody's stories, but... There are seasons of your life where you've walked through them and you've just began to think to yourself, God, what are you doing? God, this doesn't make any sense to me. God, could you explain to me how I stepped out and I followed you and this is where I end up in my life? And how do you reconcile those? How do you not feel like God is punishing you in those moments? Well, thankfully, we have the word of God to turn to 
this morning. And so I would say to anybody here this morning, whether you would say your suffering uh, or your difficulties is mild or complex or ongoing even, that the Word of God would speak life to each of us this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of James. It's all the way at the end of the Bible. It would be better if you start at the left side uh, and work your way back over. We're just going to be walking through the book of James over the next couple of weeks, and uh, I'm going to be kind of parking in each section and, and talking through it. So I'd encourage you to grab a Bible. If you don't have one, we'd love to put one for free in your hands back out uh, at the Welcome Center. But James chapter 1 starts like this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. This James is the half-brother of Jesus. So he grew up alongside Jesus. Excuse me. He grew up alongside Jesus. Uh, interestingly enough, he doesn't call himself, hey, I'm James, the half-brother of Jesus, so you have to listen to me. He says, James, I'm just a servant of God. I just serve uh, Jesus, and I'm writing to you. He's writing to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So basically what had taken place at this point in history uh, is that uh, opposition and oppression had come down on the Jewish uh, nation, and those who were followers of Jesus ended up, because of this persecution, also being scattered uh, so they're basically living as exiles and vagabonds in other cities. Uh, they're not in their home, and he's writing a letter to them. And right off the bat, you get this picture that James is writing to a people who are suffering. They stepped out. They committed their life to God. They decided to follow him, and life didn't get easier. It didn't get better. It didn't get more comfortable. In fact, it got worse for them because they're now run out from their home, living as exiles. And so James is going to write a letter to these people who are in an incredibly difficult season. Imagine for yourself, today you go home and your home is destroyed, your bank account is drained, and you're forced to leave the entire area, potentially even the country, because you're a Christian. What would you want to be said to you in that moment? Well, here's what the Word of God says to the followers of Jesus at that time. Verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I think if I were to write this today, I'm going to put on my sympathetic heart. I'm going to say, oh, man, I'm so sorry about what happened to you. That was so difficult. I don't understand why God would allow this. This, is, this must be so frustrating. I can't imagine the devastation your family is feeling. I'm, that's not what he says, is it? <laughs> He wastes no time in the very first command he gives to these people. He says, consider it pure joy. Not kind of joy. Not like, hey guys, let's fake it. We have a reputation to uphold here. This is pure joy. You know, like the look on your kid's face at Christmas morning. Pure joy. You got me the Legos. That's the posture he calls a heart to. And then he says something interesting in there. He says, whenever uh, you face trials, of many kinds. So it's not like there's some trials in life that are just easy and they're just, we can get through them. And then there's other trials that are uh, hard, but they have purpose. And then there's other trials that are hard and have no purpose. He says, no, no, no. There, there is a emotion that is supposed to follow every trial, regardless of what it is. And it is pure joy. And now you're thinking, James is crazy and Christians are crazier. <laughs> What do you mean joy in the face of trials? What do you mean? that like? Do you enjoy pain? Do you enjoy difficulties and sufferings? No, he, he's not saying find joy in the trial. He tells us in the next part of the verse, the next verse, where we are to find our joy, or why we are to find our joy, verse 3. He says, because 
you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. He gives the why. He says, you and I, when we're facing things in our life that are hard, that are hurting, that are, that are painful, we can have pure joy because we know that this test, this trial is doing something and it is producing something. What he says to us here is that we are told to look beyond what is happening to what it is producing. And this is hard because it requires us to look beyond pain. And pain is really hard to overlook. Right? Like you never realize how much you use your right pinky until you smash your right pinky in the door while you're trying to close it. And all of a sudden, it's all you can think about. You never think about your pinky until you hurt it. And pain has a way of narrowing our focus down. And the call that James is giving to us is that we would look back. We'd zoom out. We look beyond what is happening in our life currently to what it's producing. Through the rest of this passage, we're going to see three reality checks uh, that James lays before us that will help us back up from the position of our pain and begin to see what God is doing. He says the first one right here that we would know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. As you consider a test, what is the test of a purpose or the purpose of a test? It's evaluating your knowledge. It's evaluating what you know. And that is largely determined by this. My values shape my evaluation. What I believe to be important, what I believe to be of utmost value will determine my evaluation of something, right? Like why do runners run? Why do people work out? Why do, why do people work long hours? Because they have a value or a belief that the difficulty of that exercise or the difficulty of those, uh, that hard work will produce something beneficial for them, either a good health or good paychecks. Right? There is a value that drives them to not only uh, not avoid difficulty, but enter into difficulty because there's a value there. Right? So let's consider food here. I think this will help us understand it. Some of us, and I want some show of hands, I want you to incriminate yourself this morning. You are a high uh, quantity, low dollar value eater. Okay? So what that means is you cried when Old Country Buffet left Upper Front Street and Golden Corral is your jam when you're traveling, all right? Couple, all right, a couple of us are gonna be honest. The rest of you, I know who you are. It's okay, we love you, okay? Others of you, there are a, a high, uh, what's the word? There's uh, quality, that's the word. High quality and price is subjective to you, right? When you're choosing, you're like, I want food that tastes good. Show of hands, I don't, I'm not gonna really look at the menu, I wanna make sure it tastes good, okay? Then there's some of you who are uh, more refined in your palate that are going to drive by a bunch of really fine restaurants to get to a particular restaurant that you like. You're the ones that are really hard to go out to eat with because you only eat uh, Thai food or you only eat basic food, whatever it is. Let's see who you are out there. I know one of you in particular. I won't say you by name, uh, but all right, he just outed his wife. They can deal with that later, okay? Here, here's where this shows up. You are a high quality dollar is irrelevant going to lunch with your uh, friend who lives at Golden Corral. You are both going to show up to the same restaurant be greeted by the same uh, hostess, you're going to uh, see and value all of the same food, and you are going to walk out there with totally different evaluations of your experience. Your Golden Corral friend is gonna be high on life thinking about all the extra money he saved that he can now spend on other things, and you're going to be wondering if the chicken was really chicken after all. <laughs> same experience, 
totally different evaluations based on what you valued. And so it is true with life. Right? You've noticed, you've seen people go through incredibly difficult circumstances in life, and you even maybe have gone through similar circumstances, and when you look at them, they just seem to be doing it better. They just seem to have a better attitude about it, a better approach. They're more resilient or whatever it is. Well, what that is, is there is a value that is driving the evaluation of that time and space. And in fact, it's not just something that some people are to have. What we're reading here in James is that attribute of being able to go through difficulty well, to be tested, to be evaluated, and to be found joyful is actually a call to all believers, to all followers of God, that it would, when we are tested, be a value that is revealed in our life, all for the sake of perseverance. So let's keep reading about perseverance in verse 4. It says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Here's the value that he's driving at that we would understand. You can go back to the verse there. That we would understand that what this difficulty is doing in us is creating maturity. It's growing us up. It's refining us. It's removing things. And here's where your values and God's values might become a little bit uh, in odds, at odds with each other. Because if we're honest, and I'm going to throw myself under the bus here, one of the values in our culture is comfort and ease, right? Like, I'm not sure if anything is more rewarding to me than sitting back in a recliner on a Sunday afternoon with the TV on, not paying any attention to it, the kids are asleep. <sighs> comfort and ease. I love it. We love it. It's okay, but it is not God's primary value for your life. What God's primary value for your life and my life is that we would grow up to be more like Jesus, that we would leave behind the old broken ways, that we would pick up perfection. That's what uh, this means here, that you'd be mature, complete, not liking anything, that we would be fully furnished that when God looks at your life, his goal is not for you to be the most comfortable, though he wants you to be cared for. It's that you would be complete, lacking nothing. That means then when we evaluate our difficulties, we have to understand, and this is our second reality check, that my difficulties are the pathway to my development. The things God has put in your life are not accidental. Now, to be fair, there are sometimes we and I make really non-intelligent choices that cause us more harm or more difficulties than God intended, but God doesn't waste those either. They're learning curves for us. And anybody who's ever had kids or parented kids or talked to grandkids or nieces or nephews, you understand this so clearly for them. You'll be talking to them and maybe you're going through a period of discipline and you're saying, listen, I know, uh, talking to the kid, I know you can't see what I'm doing now is for your good. I know you think I'm doing this to you, not for you. But one day you'll gain enough perspective to see that this is actually for your good. And it's amazing how easy that is to see it in somebody else's life, especially our kid's life, and how difficult it is to believe that to be true for our own life. But we have to understand that God is a good father and that God as a father is looking on, on us as his children saying, look, uh, the gap between you and your kid in, in intelligence and wisdom is probably about this compared to the gap between God and you, which is infinite. 
And he's saying, don't you think in my infinite wisdom I can look in on your life and see that this difficulty that you've been put in is not a wasted. In fact, it is the very path you are to be in so that you can get to where you need to be. I'm not doing something to you. I'm doing something for you. What I realize now looking back on, on what John did in that season is that he knew there were some things in my life that needed to go. He put me on this path to develop me. But the problem is we don't always do this so well, do we? We don't always follow through. Like we try to escape. We try to deny. We try to uh, medicate. We try to ignore the pain when, when what we're missing is the lesson. And God is gracious because what it said here in verse 4 was that we're to let perseverance finish its work. Which means if we short-circuit the process by medicating, by escaping, by numbing, that the whole purpose of that difficulty is lost. That, that the value of what God was trying to give us is missed. And here's the annoying and loving thing that God will do for us. He'll bring us back around to that lesson until we learn it again. And then he might have to bring us back around to that lesson again until we learn it again. <laughs> well, that's a good father. But it's frustrating to us who, who just want to escape that moment. But here's what God reveals to us. That he values you growing enough to bring you back to it. Which is why perhaps you this morning feel like you've been stuck in a cycle for your whole life that the same problem has continued to follow you, that the same difficulty has just been true of your life forever, could it be that as you read this, that God wants to finish the good work in you that he started? That God has brought you back to this in his loving grace, that you would leave it behind forever? That you would be complete and mature, lacking nothing? But what do you do about those things in life that just seem insurmountable? Well, you got to have perspective. But then listen to what is said here in James chapter 5. It says, If any of you lack wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. We're going to pause right there in verse 5. So sometimes it's really hard to know in this difficulty, in this trial, like, what is God doing here? God, what are you trying to shave me? God, what are you uh, revealing to me? Well, what he says here, and sometimes we use this verse in context of just gaining knowledge, but it's in the context of understanding why life can be difficult sometimes. It doesn't mean that if you don't know the purpose of the trial, it doesn't mean the trial is purposeless. It just means you don't know. Because sometimes we don't get to see the purpose of what God is doing in this difficulty until years later. It was probably five years after I left Jamaica that I realized what God was doing. I realized in those moments when I was out there working hard, that I was learning the lesson that ministry really is about doing the things that nobody sees. Ministry is about doing hard work when nobody's looking. It, it shaped my parenting. Doing the thankless jobs that no one will ever see or ever know you did, including taking out the trash, including fighting the raccoons in the trash and all the other creatures in there. It shaped my marriage. Because I wasn't supposed to do something in light of what she might think or what others might think. I was supposed to do what was right in light of what God had called me to. It, it ripped comparison out of my life because what was more miserable than anything to me, and it wasn't like I was afraid of hard work. I worked two jobs in between my junior and senior year of high school all the way through my senior year while being a tri-sport athlete. Like, I loved hard work. It wasn't that. 
It was that while I was sitting there doing this work, I would look up at the pool and there's pool boy and every other kid in this program hanging out at the pool. I realized I was the only one on base whose work duties actually took the full time. And comparison was not only destroying what could have been good and rewarding work, it was destroying friendships. God had to rip that out of me. And on and on I could go. I couldn't see that until years later. But what if, and here's the question I've asked myself on many occasions, what if I believe James chapter 1? What if I believe that God was always doing something in the difficulty and all I needed to do was ask and find out what he was doing? What if in the middle of the trial, you stopped saying, God, why are you doing this? Instead, we began to say, God, what is it that you are trying to grow and develop or remove in me? Can I even shorten this process of difficulty because I'm willing to go through it better? Here's what he says in verse 6. He says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. God's going to reveal that to us, either through his word or in hindsight. He's going to make it clear to us. And what he's saying here is that you have to hold fast to your faith in the middle of difficulties, in the middle of trials, because sometimes life is so bad that all you have is faith. That sight has failed you. That, that your knowledge has become too limited. And the trial is so hard, you can't possibly understand it. And what he's saying is that we have to cling to faith in those moments because it is our only sight. And if we forget faith and we forsake faith, he says we're going to be blown and tossed by the wind. Life is going to throw us against the rocks and we're going to wonder what happened. Because faith is our anchor point in these Trials, and here's the third wake-up call for us this morning, that my response in difficulty reveals the quality of my faith. It is easy to follow God when life is good. It is easy to praise the name of Jesus when things are going well. It is easy, especially in our culture. What trials do is they reveal how real, how authentic is our pursuit and love for God. How genuine is our relationship with him because pressure reveals quality. You can always tell a fake product when you put it under load and under pressure, will it stand the test? The question James is posing to them is, when this trial has come, it is revealing what is true about your walk because the reality is there is no real faith without real testing. And so, when we and I in difficulties throw our hands up at God and say, what are you doing? What he's doing is he's allowing us to evaluate our relationship. He's allowing us to choose if we are going to walk by sight or walk by faith. Well, I trust that though I don't see the end result yet, he does. And I trust him and he's a good father. But here's the deal. If you don't trust him, if you don't think he's good, if you don't think he has your best interest in mind, you won't turn to him in these moments. I won't turn to him in these moments. I will turn from him, which is why it is so essential that in good seasons of our life, we dig in. 
we know who God is. We uh, develop our relationship with Jesus. Can I uh, urge you as a pastor and been in ministry for 12 years that the amount of conversations I've had with people who didn't take their faith seriously until life got too hard? That is not, now sometimes God allows that moment to propel us forward in our walk, but that is not the moment to begin following Jesus. The moment to begin is now. Because, he's, because life is broken. Life is difficult. But here's the good news that Jesus offers us and that the word of God offers us is that as followers of God, we can now look at per, or pain with purpose. The world doesn't have that luxury. Those who don't follow God don't have that luxury. For them, pain is often meaningless and just a result of brokenness. But God in his goodness can redeem that for your good. And listen, I don't love trials, and I don't think we're called to love trials. But we are called is to love what God is producing in us through those trials. And one of the things he produces in that is the dependency on Jesus that we also desperately need. And beyond that, what we get to see is a piece of what the Savior did for us. Hebrews chapter 2 says it this way. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10. And bringing, bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom, Everything exists. Let me just explain that real quick. He's saying it was fitting that the God who created everything and everything was about and everything was for, right? So his preeminence above all of us should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Here's what he means. That he allowed Jesus to come to earth, the one through whom everything was created, one who deserved to not suffer, to come and suffer for you and for me to be made the complete and perfect Savior. Because we have a, a high priest, as it says in another piece, uh, piece, piece of Hebrews, who is able to sympathize with us. He understands the pains of this life. He knows in great detail the trials that you have walked. And can I tell you, whether you're here as a follower of God or whether you're here not yet as a follower of God, there has never been a moment of your life where Jesus wasn't present. There is never a pain or a scar that he is unaware of, that he has been there in every moment. And what he has said through the declaration at the cross was that I know and it's terrible and I paid for it. I went to the cross to remove the pain and sorrow and suffering of this life. And so in suffering, there's this crazy invitation that Jesus gives us. That we would know him and that we would be made like him. And that is the greatest value for us as followers of Jesus. That we would have the character of Christ produced in us. So I have a couple of questions for you as we evaluate. I want you to go ahead and write these down. What values are surfacing through your trials? Maybe you're in a season of difficulty now, or maybe you're reflecting back on a season of difficulty. Uh, what values seem to creep up in your heart when that happens? Maybe for you, it's comfort. Uh, one of the things that bothers you most is when your comfort is disturbed. Uh, maybe for you, I, I don't know what it is. There's a whole list of values uh, you could lay out here. But for me, as I uh, consider this, uh, one of the things is control. 
I like to know the direction of my life. I like to make uh, planning decisions to kind of dictate where my life might end up. Now, I do it with prayer and I do it uh, with the Lord, but like when all of a sudden I'm not going where I wanted to go, the value of control becomes very evident in my life that I want to try to take this back. Is the value really for us Christ-likeness? Here's the second question for us. In what ways are you resisting God's development of your faith? In what ways do you feel the Holy Spirit prompting you, pushing you, pulling you? Maybe it's to even become a follower of Jesus in the first place. And you feel it and you know it, but you kind of know what it's going to cost you. And you're weighing those values. Well, here's just the plain question for us. Will we stop resisting? Will we walk in this? Because it is how God has chosen to develop us into completeness. And here's the third one. What situation do you need God's wisdom for and what is keeping you from asking for it? Maybe you've hit a roadblock in your life and maybe it's with parenting, maybe it's in your job, maybe I don't know what it is for you. But you're not coming to him for wisdom for whatever reason. Maybe it's like I said, you're trying to control it yourself, you're trying to manage it yourself. And, and what would it look like and what would need to be removed for you to come to that place of surrender. Here's the call for us this morning, that we would suffer well. And I know this is not like a chipper rah-rah message, but it can be. It can be because it can change the entire posture of our hearts, that when difficulties hit, we don't go, why God? We go, okay, God, I trust you. I'm so glad I don't have to go this alone. I'm so glad I have you with me. I'm so glad I have the community of believers with me. I'm so glad I have your Holy Spirit to empower me. This stinks, but I trust you, and I trust on the other side of this is going to be a good reward for me and my relationship with you. If you're here today and and you're going through an especially difficult time and you would love to talk with somebody about how to find hope in the middle of that, uh, we would love to talk with you and pray with you about that. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness in our life, and we thank you for what you're doing. God, there are moments where we can't see it, but we want to believe it. And so we ask that you would give us faith to see what you're doing in the middle of it all. I pray for every heart in here this morning that um, what would be true of our lives would be pure joy. What would be true is that anyone in here who is not yet a follower of you would, would find you the greatest hope ever. Lord, we need your strength. We need your endurance. We need your vision to be able to see what it is that you're doing in our life. Lord, we pray all of this in your son's name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.